Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8.com. So I would always just say, like, be safe out there. Like, we usually told each other, um, you know, mm. um, be as safe uh, online as you are in person, basically. Welcome to Needlestack. I'm Jeff Phillips, and I'll be your host for today's episode. I'm Aubrey Byron, a producer on Needlestack. So today, we're joined by Richard Denholm, a former FBI investigator and director at A1C Partners. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thanks. Great to be here. Uh, so great to have you back, Richard. For those of you new to the show, Richard joined us last year to discuss how law enforcement is using OSINT. Um, can you give us a little bit of an overview to remind listeners about those tactics and how you use it both in your history at the FBI and at A1C? Yeah, sure. And I mean, just a little bit more background about myself. I spent about 22 years with the FBI, retired uh, as a supervisory special agent, unit chief at FBI headquarters. Uh, my last stop was as the FBI's uh, detail lead to the Department of Justice at its OSINT Fusion Center. So we specialize in information sharing across law enforcement to help improve um, investigations, um, help investigators make better uh, uh, cases uh, to enforce the laws of the United States. Um, after I retired, um, I ended up with A1C Partners as a director. Um, I also am an attorney and I'm using much of my legal background to help advise our customers on legal privacy and policy concerns um, when they use uh, open source information in particular, um, but also focused on other intelligence issues as well. Um, and as my side job, I'm an adjunct faculty member at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, and I teach intelligence there as well. So. No, it's, it's a great, great, it's a great background and we'll dig into some elements of that. You know, before we started uh, recording, we were talking, Richard, that on one hand, OSINT is always changing as, um, as a discipline, but, you know, sometimes things from a, a legal and what you can and can't do, uh, maybe they, there hasn't been significant changes uh, versus last time, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, are you seeing anything changing uh, out there, whether it's for uh, the government on the federal side or, you know, anything you're seeing on the commercial side? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, and, and, you know, it is important to stay on the cutting edge in this arena. Um, and so it, since we last talked about a year ago, um, I have not seen any earth shaking changes um, in the open source publicly available information realm as far as, um, you know, obviously we're always looking for court cases and legislation that would infringe 
on the government's ability um, to uh, collect open source information or right, use right. it. Um, I haven't seen anything really earth shakering in, in that. Um, clearly, there are cases that come out um, occasionally that that we have to be aware of. All right, and we have to be aware of it um, for private mm -hmm. sector clients as well. Right, they have to follow the law. They have to be concerned with privacy issues for their their um, for their employees and for their customers. Right, we know that in California they have a very robust uh, privacy law in place. We also know that in the uh, European Union, um, their laws uh, governing privacy are very stringent. So, you know, we're always kind of, those are kind of the guardrails, you know, between California and the European Union. Like those are kind of the guardrails right now too that you kind of have to watch for. I would say large corporations in particular, right? Because they, national corporations operate in all 50 states. So what I've seen with them is that they often have to abide by the most stringent rules, right? So that's why California almost kind of um, takes over some of that realm. It's interesting to note, um, I just moved out of Virginia. Virginia has environmental standards that match California's, which are stricter. Mm -hmm. And there's a big debate in Virginia right now about why are we following California, right? I mean, but, but when you're in the legal realm, whether it's open source, environmental, other types of policy regulations, you know, you always try to keep your eye on, you know, what's the most stringent privacy protections. And it's good to protect privacy. I'm, I'm not mm -hmm. saying anything about that. Sure. But as we talked about last time, I noted that, you know, if information is publicly available um, in whatever source, right, we know that that um, uh, deeds for, for houses and mortgages are publicly recorded, right? Um, that information is available to everyone and everyone includes the government, right? And so um, we also know that when we talk about constitutional privacy in this country, you know, um, we all as citizens are required to um, protect our privacy as well, right? I mean, um, you know, mm -hmm. what you don't protect and what you open and notoriously put out there is fair game for you, for me, for the government, unfortunately for other governments to see as well, right? So it's a, it is a right. huge framework that that applies. So hopefully that helps a little bit. But. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way before. You know, with you giving those guardrails, if if California and the European Union have have the strictest rules, if you're if you're abiding by those, then then you're covered, and it, it may reduce some things that you can do, but um, from a legal standpoint, that uh, for sure makes a lot of sense if you use that as your kind of your bottom line of, of the rules you're going to follow. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, our listeners span a lot of different industries and it seems sometimes like they can almost be a little bit siloed in their approach. Are there certain strategies that law enforcement use that you think could apply well to other OSINT practitioners outside of law enforcement? Um, you, you know, and I, I don't want to give you like a pithy answer to that, but but it is a little bit like like know the law. I mean, um, do research in it, have a team that provides advice. Everybody. And again, I'm a I am a licensed attorney. I can say it. a lot of people hate attorneys, but they can be very useful. Right. Especially in this <laughs> arena. You need them sure. to be conducting the research for you um, so that you can have an understanding of of. You know, and I and I think I said this last time too. Whatever state you're operating in, you definitely want to have a very firm understanding of what the privacy laws 
are in your, in your state, um, what the courts have held in your state as far as the use of open source information for whatever that is. And, and obviously in the, in the private sector, that would involve um, hiring employees, right? I mean, how far can you go digging through mm -hmm. their backgrounds? What can you do? What can't you do? Um, so I think, you know, Aubrey, kind of a kind of a simple answer is, you know, understand the law and policy and regulations in your state and then use that to uh, form your own policy and have a policy. The worst thing, and it happens where people um, internal to these to whatever, to companies, you know, I don't really see it too much in government because they are very bound by laws and regulations. So they communicate about it. But the worst thing you can do um, is just to start operating and somebody has a good idea like, you know, hey, all, for all of our employees, we're going to scrub all of their Facebook posts, everything that we can, everything that's out there. We're going to store that information ourselves on our systems, you know, gather any, you know, PII that we can on the person. And it may all sound like a great idea. And you start doing that right. and you gain maybe a better understanding of who you're going to hire, which is a good thing. But you might go too far, you know, and you might actually violate somebody's privacy, um, run afoul of the laws of your state. Um, so, you know, we in the privacy realm, too, when we look at these, there's a lot of discussion of retention policies. Right. So, for example, you need to be aware that if you have a potential employee and you collect information on them, you better have a policy and you better have it written down and reviewed and understood. How long are you going to retain that data? I mean, Jeff, if I want to hire you and I gather tons of data on you and then I never hire you, you walk away and I hang on to your data for, I don't know, 10 years. And then, uh oh, we get hacked. Mm. Right. And maybe there was PII in there about right. you. And now it's out. Is, that may create liability for your company. Right. So. Again, it's it's an idea of talking through this, having a team of people, you know, again, teaching at George Mason, constantly talking about collaboration in the entire the intelligence realm, um, you know, talk it through, do a red team. What are the worst case scenarios that can occur? Um, but, you know, and, and then have a policy. If I want to hire Jeff, I do collect data on you. Um, we don't hire you, walk away. Okay, we're going to have a policy a month later, 30 days later, that data is purged, right? That's gone. Um, or six months later, but have something in place. Now, that that makes a lot of sense, Richard. Um, by the way, that, that comes up a lot of times when we're talking with people, uh, customers and whatnot on the dark website. Uh, that point you made, which is, you know, you need to have a policy. If there is no policy, that's not a, a necessarily an, an opening just to go do what you want. You'd, you'd prefer to have it. You got to have something written down, whether that, you know, before you go yeah. out and do things like you said, PII or or go to the dark web, having a, a policy versus a lack of policy, meaning um, you're good to go. You shouldn't take that approach for sure. I think that's the subject of a few of our blogs. Yeah, is like, you should go on the dark web, but <laughs> hold on. You know, now, let, let's dig back a little bit, Rich. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to add, I mean, it, you know, I learned a lot in my law enforcement career as well, having unfortunately worked around some cases involving child pornography and those kind of things. You know, and that kind of data, when you talk about dark web, I mean, you could start stepping into some of that stuff, you know, and you don't want to be accessing that information or collecting it or having it on your computer. I mean, we had 
we had to put in place very stringent standards on how to handle that material. I mean, you know, as agents, you're collecting evidence, right? But if you're dealing with that type of evidence, you have to take extra precautions because it's very easy to become a disseminator of it, even unintentionally. And there's really no loophole for you, even as a federal agent, um, you know, if I hand it to another agent that technically could, or I hand it to an AUSA and I'm not careful, that technically could be dissemination. So there's these, there's a lot of trips and traps out there. So Aubrey, when you bring up the dark web, there, there's a lot of nefarious things that are occurring in there and you better have an understanding of what you're dealing with. Cause even, you know, the good folks can step into stuff that they can get them jammed up. So sorry, Jeff, go ahead. I know Absolutely. No, sure. No, that's, it's, it's great advice. Well, let's go back to uh, George Mason university and recall you being a professor there. Um, can you remind us um, what, what, what's the curriculum curriculum that um, that you teach? Has that been evolving at all? And and just to give you uh, some backdrop, we've had two or three guests now this year um, that are on the academic side. So it's really interesting to see um, you know what's going on with OSINT and intelligence uh, as we as we um, educate the, the the next level of in, or the next generation of, of investigators out there um, through college. Absolutely. And I, I was happy to hear you had uh, my colleague, Dr. Stephen Coldhart on a while back um, from yep. SUNY. He's kind of at the cutting edge of um, OSINT issues and, and intelligence work. And it's exciting to be uh, collaborating with him and talking to him um, as often as I do. Um, but yes, at George Mason. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, right. No, and he really, you know, is, is moving uh, a lot of things forward in this realm of OSINT. Um, so George Mason, I teach in the Department of Criminology, Law and Society, um, and we have an intelligence minor there. And as you can imagine, George Mason is, you know, uh, in Fairfax, Virginia, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. So it's a great uh, university and a great location because of its proximity to government, um, which is critical. Um, and several years ago, they really saw a need to, um, you know, really build up their uh, intelligence program there to teach, as you said, even the next generation of um, intelligence analysts, um, teach them, you know, even the basics of what is the intelligence community? Um, you know, who are the members of the intelligence community? Which agencies? Um, and then to educate them on, you know, again, just the basics, the history of the United States intelligence community, how it's evolved, um, you know, and, and how to be an intelligence analyst. So I started there teaching basic um, introduction to the intelligence community uh, about three years ago now. Um, I have added one class as an aside. I also am an expert in public corruption. I worked a lot of corruption for the FBI um, and uh, they let me teach a, a course in corruption last year. Um, and I'll be teaching that again in the fall. I have written a textbook on intelligence and corruption now. Those are both used at the university, um, which is fun. I'm not quite sure if those were published last time we talked, but both are now. I um, think so. And then, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I have a textbook um, on each topic. Um, and so um, this semester, though, I began to teach um, a more advanced intelligence analysis course, um, you know, getting more into critical thinking. Um, and really teaching the students 
um, you know, again, a, a simple answer of don't take things at face value, right? I mean, it's much more in depth mm -hmm. than that because it is an entire semester. And But I think that's a good way to kind of conceptualize it of, of what you build the course around, um, especially in this day and age. And I think we talked a bit about disinformation last time I was here with you as well, mm -hmm. um, that you really have to, to be on the lookout, especially in this day and age, um, for disinformation, right? And And how to analyze things coming at you um, to make sure that that it's accurate and and that you are able to turn raw information into intelligence and disseminate it and get it into the intelligence cycle right um, and during right. that course we do of course talk a lot about um, open source uh, intelligence um, and you know it's a it's a critical factor um, in, in that course as well Tell us a little bit more about how um, OSINT plays into that public corruption in particular. That's interesting. That's a great question. Um, you know, and I don't <laughs> know if I was quite at the cutting edge of this, but in, in my travels in the uh, FBI, I worked in Youngstown, Ohio uh, quite a bit, worked on several very large, high profile public corruption investigations. Um, and I got to tell you, I mean, what what is OSINT? What is public publicly available information it's many things um but journalists the press right that's open uh, source information i often found working corruption um there's a lot of fantastic uh journalists investigative journalists who did a lot of the background work for me right and you could sit there and, and follow a lot of the investigative mm -hmm. pieces that they put together um and they're throwing sunshine on corruption, right? Which I always say when I teach, corruption loves to dwell in darkness. And again, the fourth estate, the media, journalists throw light onto that. And that's great, but really that's all they can do, right? They can only throw light on it. So then we kind of saw that as investigators to be aware of our environment. We would call it our AOR, area of responsibility. You know, we'd pay attention to that. And I will tell you, I made a lot of leads in my investigations and made pieces of my criminal investigations from tidbits that I pulled um, from those media reports, right? I mean, and when they go into the criminal investigative mm -hmm. realm, that opens up a whole nother realm of vetting. Um, I mean, because you're, you're going to put somebody's life and livelihood in jeopardy, basically, right? When you subject them to the criminal process. Mm -hmm. So we didn't just take reporters information at face value we had to build on it sometimes it went nowhere i mean it was just nothing and and that's fine but i will tell you i mean there were times that those were pretty good leads and those turned into pieces of criminal cases you know from our work on it and sometimes made their way into indictments and on to trial um etc so again i mean that's just a very clear use of of open source information, um, public information, um, you know, we read too, right? As federal investigators, <laughs> you know, I don't think anybody would want us, you know, you know, and again, it kind of fits into this open source work we talk about now, you know, just play this out. We want to protect privacy. We do protect privacy. But I mean, argue with me if you would like, but would you like law enforcement or government to have people out there publicly saying, I'm, you know, going to fly planes into buildings 
and then we do nothing about it, right? We know that those sure. mistakes were made and those mistakes can't happen again, right? I mean, we're all human. There's mistakes that continue to happen. We see that every day as well. Um, but, you know, we need to be paying attention too if you're in law enforcement and they do, and I did at the time, um, still talk a little bit in present tense. It's a little hard to get away from that, um, <laughs> being retired still, but I'm still a big fan of the FBI. They get criticized very unfairly often. Sometimes they deserve it. But, um, but again, I mean, again, that's the point, right? I mean, you know, this information that's out there should be reviewed, should be vetted. And what do I always talk about? Balanced with the privacy concerns, et cetera. So. No, that's a great point. We actually had uh, a few journalists on for a series we did on fact checking. And that's not often, you don't think of journalism really as OSINT, but in a lot of ways, it's very similar. And you said sunshine and especially using sunshine laws um, to get public information that isn't readily available. Well, a hundred percent. Right. And, and then there's, you know, freedom of information act. Um, and there are ways obviously that, that information can be obtained legally. Um, and then clearly journalists develop sources, um, you know, and clearly that's what we, when I was an FBI agent, that's what we were supposed to do, right. Develop sources, vet those sources, you know, develop leads and information and cases from that. And we, we talk about that in, in the courses at George Mason as well. We, you know, human intelligence, human, right. I mean, it's the best intelligence mm -hmm. and you have to be careful using it, obviously. And it has to be vetted and checked and triple checked, blah, blah, blah. Um, but human is the best. Okay. And then we talk about technical sources, tech in, et cetera. Very important. All the tools that we've talked about with you, tools are very valuable. You can use them to gather information um, and, and move things along quicker, organize information. That's clearly important. So, um, but it all goes back to human. I'm saying that. So it's very important. And yeah. I would, I would, I don't want to lead you guys too, but you were kind of asking before, as far as um, I thought, as far as um, how we as investigators would look at OSINT, um, how it would factor into investigations, et cetera. I think that kind of describes it between the media, the journalists that we use for cases, and then actually doing open source research um, in the government ourselves. So. You know, keeping kind of on this topic of, I guess it, the way I'm going to ask this, it, this turns into OSINT, but we, we've, from your FBI days, we've, we seem to have seen more intelligence disclosures on behalf of go the government intelligence community, especially in the run up to the Ukraine. So, you know, where they were taking, uh, where um, intelligence was being shared openly. Um, do you, what, what are your thoughts there? Do you see a larger shift toward, Maybe there's less classification and more public disclosures of that kind of analysis, or was that was a very unique situation? Um, what are your thoughts about um, you know that that less disclass less classification and, and disclosure of some of the intelligence community uh, uh, information? That's it. That's interesting. I wouldn't frame it up that way. I don't think there's less classification. Okay. Maybe maybe there's less emphasis on people following the rules. Maybe that's maybe how I would frame it up a little bit. <laughs> Well, we know that for what's being found in houses. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> houses, garages, everything else, everywhere else. But, right. Um, but it also seemed like 
we put out some of that intelligence to assist the Ukraine publicly about what we were knowing. Like we went pretty public with, um, um, you know, what we were seeing going on in Russia, for example. Yeah. And, and so in my defense, I'd say that's a little outside my realm. I think State Department experts okay. would be a little bit better to comment. I'm, I'm always happy to comment, though, because I that's how I am. But I, I firmly I, I really think. Right. I mean, that, that, you know, I mean, I think it's a strategy. I mean, I think the government would release things um, in, in such a global realm like that. And again, we teach this at George Mason. Right. When you look at the history of intelligence, um, you know, there have been deception operations throughout history, right? I mean, in, in disinformation and misinformation, you know, the ghost army in World War II is still one of my favorites, you know, creating the, you know, in the UK, you know, um, armies of, of uh, blown up inflatable tanks and barracks and everything else, right? To fool the Germans as they flew over thinking that the strike into France would occur from the north, right? So I think what you're talking about with the whole Russia-Ukraine thing too, um, you know, kind of fits into that, right? The governments are using information um, strategically um, in ways they see fit. So, you know, the president's the ultimate uh, classification authority and the ultimate releaser of information. So clearly, if any president thought, even though this is classified, it's important to release for part of our strategic objectives. You know, I, I, again, I'm not an expert in that, but I do teach it a little bit. I think that that would be, that would be why that there were some strategic mm -hmm. interest to it. Um, believe me, I was thinking even at the time, the Russian alleged buildup along the border of Ukraine, you know, even before the war started, you start to think a little bit about, cause they are masters at disinformation. They are, they are some of the best. And you start to wonder, you know, is what we're seeing there, is that a dummy army? Now, clearly, this is where we get into the technical realm in our day and age, much harder to do that today, right? Like, like mm -hmm. doing inflatable tanks in the UK now, I think they would spot, even though apparently floating balloons at 40,000 feet are difficult to spot. I, you know what I mean? So, um, yep. right. But it, it is, it is, yeah. it is, I'm not, I've never been good at Rubik's cube or chess. And I feel like my whole life has been chess and Rubik's cubes, but, but all those things, you know, flying the Chinese, if it was, and again, I asked my class this too, the other night, are we still a hundred percent sure it was Chinese? I mean, is, you know, we're being told things there's writing, is there writing on it? I didn't see a big China flashing on it at the time. Right. But when you talk about intelligence analysis too, you have to ask those questions, right? Don't take anything at face value, um, research it, study it now. So again, back to your question with Russia, Ukraine, I, you know, again, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Um, and, and, you know, whatever those strategic goals are to release information, um, you know, I believe in our government always have since I worked in it. I think mm -hmm. I'm an expert to comment. The motives are good on our part. Um, we, we generally don't invade our neighbors. I'm not aware of us invading Canada or Mexico in the last few hundred years to take their territory. Mm -hmm. unlike the Russians. Right. I mean, so, um, you know, again, I, I guess a long winded answer to your short question, but that was my two cents. No, it, makes, it makes sense. If it, if it matches to the strategy, then, um, 
but you're not seeing anything like, oh, we're just we're going to release a bunch more. It's it's going to depend. It'll depend if in the future if another scenario arises where releasing what is considered classified information is useful to our approach. That that makes that makes sense. And, and I think that I would I would argue that that's extremely extremely rare because the whole idea of mm -hmm. classifying information is to protect government information um, because releasing it, you know, again, teaching the students at George Mason, you know, we, we talk about top secret, secret and unclassified. Those have real meanings as far as the potential damage to the United States, right? And, and releasing top secret data would pose tremendous damage to the United States if it's released. That's why we classify it at top secret level. So it's not released. So so the overall general rule, Jeff, is that that information is not going to be released. And if it is, that's also in the realm of the FBI to conduct uh, potential criminal investigations, definitely counterintelligence investigations, right. et cetera. Uh, Richard, you mentioned, you know, how those newspaper scoops could be a good lead for FBI investigations. We've talked a lot about the recent influx and sort of amateur Twitter sleuths participating in OSINT online. And sometimes this can do a lot of good, such as helping to geolocate or debunk photos in Ukraine, for instance, but it can also go off the rails, such as making false accusations in the case of Moscow, Idaho murders. What do you think the relationship is right now between law enforcement and these sort of amateur researchers? Again, a great question. And, and when you first posed that to me a while back, it, it generated a lot of thought on my part, which is always a good thing. And and I've really gone back and forth in my mind about it. But, you know, I think where I land overall is from a law enforcement perspective, we want information. We want sources. OK, so so we're going to be listening um, and, and we were listening and they are now, I'm sure. Um, and, and collecting that information, but then vetting it again, right? That kind of is the theme of the day. It has to be vetted um, because there are, there are times that those Twitter sources you talk about are, are really good. Like they really are onto something and it's valid. But just like I mentioned with the, the kind of the journalism aspect for corruption, et cetera, to start digging, you, you got to vet it, right? Because their standards are, are lower than ours, frankly. Right. I mean, they need to be truthful um, or they're going to get sued um, for, you know, slander, um, uh, defamation, whatever. But in the government and when you're doing criminal investigations, um, it's a higher standard, right? Because you're if you're doing a criminal investigation, you're planning to take something to trial. Right. You're not just doing it for fun. And so your ultimate objective is, you know, that if you get to trial, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody committed a crime. And that standard, you know, in front of 12 jurors, um, you have to convince them all, right? And it can be tough and it takes a lot of work. Um, so again, it has to be vetted even more. So you may take one source, but I would want to talk to five or six more sources around that person to verify the information. And so with somebody from Twitter who's providing information, um, you know, using the comment, you take it with a grain of salt. Is, is a very valid term, I think, very practical. Um, but you have to do that, but also keeping an open mind. Like, hey, you know, this we could treat this Twitter source just like any other source and think they could be providing us very valuable information. 
that could turn into something and and sometimes does. And then the flip side of it is, as you indicated, you have to be very leery of those whose motives aren't good. They are out to get somebody, right? People, unfortunately, can be people and want to make false accusations against somebody because they don't like them. That person offended them. You know, so in this realm, you have to constantly be aware of that and be like, what is your, what's your motive for telling us? Is it, is it altruistic? Um, and if so, yeah, that's great. I mean, I work several large scale uh, murder investigations nationally publicized, which brings out all of these type of people that you're talking about. We had a very famous one in Canton, Ohio, a famous murder case, much like the Lacey Peterson murder case out in Modesto, California. We had a very similar one in Canton, Ohio, right after that. Uh, with a nine month pregnant woman who had, who had disappeared. Um, and there were a lot of do-gooders who came out and I will tell you a quick aside, a quick story about that to kind of draw this together for what happens with this. A lot of people came out to help search for the missing woman and that's awesome. And we generated some great leads, but out of thousands, maybe only less than a handful turned out to be good. Okay. So you, you keep that in mind and, you don't want to disregard those potential leads that could be really good, right? That would be bad. But for example, we had some folks who came out to help us um, actually in another case that I'm thinking of, and they brought dogs to help us search. Okay. And I actually had one of the dogs. It was out in the woods with the dog searching um, and the dog alerted on something and was, was going, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I might be onto something. I might be, you know, and the dog led me down this trail and down a hill and dug up a Wendy's bag that was sitting there on the hill. So <laughs> I guess you could kind of call that the Wendy's bag theory of, of folks on right. Twitter, right? You, you know, they could lead you to the body that you're looking for, or hopefully a living person, or they could lead you to a Wendy's bag. I mean, this is literally kind of how you have to keep it in mind. So. Yeah, for sure. Well, Richard, as we start to wrap up here, uh, first want to thank you, uh, for coming on again. Uh, our conversations are always, always super interesting. Um, you've got such a diverse background, um, obviously from the FBI and with the, the firm you're with, and, and then as a, as a professor, um, we hope you'll join us again here in, uh, in another year, but, uh, any, any final thoughts, uh, you have for the audience today? Um, no, and I'd be happy to. And I always enjoy uh, talking to you. Thank you for having me on your show. Um, no, I just, I, I guess I would always just say like, be safe out there. Like we usually told each other, um, you know, mm. um, be as safe uh, online as you are in person, basically. Um, and I think especially in this day and age post COVID, there's a lot of fraudsters out there. So be very uh, leery and be protective of your privacy information. If we're talking about open source and what you Put out there publicly but um again thank you for the opportunity to be on and, and look forward to chatting again uh, and i love that richard be as safe online as you would be out and as if you yeah were that's a great <laughs> great advice that makes a lot of sense thank you well again thanks to our guest richard denholm for joining us today if you liked what you heard you can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts watch episodes on youtube and view transcripts and other episode info on our website, authenticate.com slash needlestack. That's authentic with the number eight.com slash needlestack. And be sure to let us know what you thought of the show on Twitter 
at NeedlestackPod is our Twitter handle, and like and subscribe wherever you're listening today. We'll be back next time with more OSINT tips for your research. See you then. Thank you.